Hi everyone, this is season two finale and our today's guest is Ray Dogam. Ray wears many hats. He's running his own podcast called Health Unchained, where he conducts interviews with healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs and medical professionals who are working on interesting projects enabled by blockchain technology. I'm a huge fan of Ray's podcast. You'll find a link to Health Unchained in the description of this episode. Ray is also a senior consultant at Equidium Health, previously known as Consensus Health a company creating person-centered healthcare and research networks to advance health equity and outcomes, all powered by Ethereum. I truly believe that blockchain will revolutionize the healthcare industry and will impact everyone from patients to providers and pharma companies. It's one of the best episodes I've ever recorded. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Ray. I'm so excited for this episode. Welcome. Thank you, Oscar. I'm excited too. I appreciate you for inviting me to the show and I'm a fan. So thanks for what you do. Let's start today with like, you know, the fundamentals and basic principles. So could you talk to us about like, what is blockchain? Give us the simplest definition. Yeah, absolutely. So defining blockchain is not as easy as, you know, I would like it to be, of course, because you have different levels of understanding of technology and how economics works and all of that. But for the broad audience, blockchain is sort of like a shared database that cannot be edited or manipulated by any stakeholders. So it's a way to create this distributed network of information. Essentially, it's a ledger that has been going on for years now. If you think about the Bitcoin blockchain, chain specifically, which was introduced in 2008 and 9, what it basically does is it allows for people to transact what's called Bitcoin. So these are cryptocurrencies that allows people to own their own money, essentially, because a single Bitcoin has a value in terms of US dollars, Russian rubles. It's all like depending on what the market has set its price to. So that's one aspect of it. But what's really interesting is that it's censorship resistant, meaning that there's no parties that can say, oh, I want to inject more Bitcoin into this economy. No, it's really governed by the original mathematics that the founder wrote into the code. And the founder is, um, I wouldn't say founder, I would say, I guess, creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, mm -hmm. which is an unknown, mysterious person or people. And really, in my view, it's going to revolutionize the way we interact with each other as human beings, because instead of relying on centralized corporations, let's say our uh, banks and other institutions, we can depend on this decentralized system or network to transact value across the internet. And that's a really big deal because mm -hmm. for the last few centuries, we've been relying on central banks and governments to create fiat currency so that we have some medium of exchange for value, which has been very helpful for sure. But I think the corruption in government that we've seen and some of the other issues worldwide, not necessarily in the Western states, but I mean, I would say everywhere a little bit, it'll give this opportunity for us to be, you know, open and transparent. And I think that's something that humans have been waiting for for a long time. And in terms of so that's kind of like the economic aspect of how blockchain is important, but it really also comes down to data ownership as well. And my interest in blockchain is how the healthcare industry can benefit from some of the utility that blockchain 
blockchain affords. So there's been a lot of different use cases that have been tested and currently sort of an experimental mode right now. I'm thinking about use cases of like provider credentialing systems so that a doctor who has years of experience and tons of credentials to his name doesn't need to prove to a health system or hospital that those credentials and his resume is real. It can be sort of time stamped on the blockchain and verified by the organizations that giving that certification in a way that's you know, decentralized and very transparent and the doctor owns that data. So he doesn't have to like call up the university or ask for the university to share those records. And there's many other use cases as well. We can get into that probably in this. And before we do that, let's just get, you know, a bit more technical. <laughs> let's talk about the key layers of blockchain. Let's have a look under the hood. Tell us like what's inside. Sure. So what you have in terms of how a blockchain operates, you have like the network layer. So the operations that go into the mining operations that go into the security of the blockchain. So as you can imagine, I like to use Bitcoin as an example to explain blockchain because there is variation in how blockchains can operate. You can have permissioned blockchains where it's not completely open and transparent, and you may have to rely on centralized actors to give you access to a blockchain or a ledger. And I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but there's a lot to this. So you have that network layer and then you also have, you know, the data layer itself. So how are these transactions being stored and they're being stored on the blockchain on many different systems. So when I say systems, I mean many different miners, computers. Mm -hmm. And every 10 minutes in the Bitcoin blockchain, you have this sort of settling activity or they're mining to receive rewards, Bitcoin rewards. So these miners have an interest to continue the operations of their mining because they get rewarded with Bitcoin every 10 minutes. They don't all get rewarded. It's sort of like part lottery and part how much hash power you hold. So there's like an algorithm that determines who is going to get the rewards. And again, there's a bit of randomness to that. And then you have like the application layer as well, which is, you know, it includes like the wallets that facilitate users or help users facilitate transactions, help them store and manage their different wallets. So a cold wallet allows users to essentially disconnect their cryptocurrency from the internet, really. And I think that's very important for people to understand. If you're getting into the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, please do some research around cold wallet storage is really important, I think, because... When you have a hot wallet, and when I say hot wallet, that's referring to a wallet that is, you know, managed by a centralized organization. Yeah. Like Coinbase, yeah. Correct. Like Coinbase, any major exchange allows you to have this like, you know, pseudo wallet, but you don't necessarily own full access to that wallet and those keys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the basic layers. There's like many other components to it. If you think about the Ethereum blockchain, which allows for many types of smart contracts to be built into applications, meaning you can automatically assign transfers and you can manage different types of logic and applications within it so it's pretty cool essentially ethereum has been dubbed like the world's smart computer you know that's mm -hmm. decentralized and will never really break or end but that's you know we're still pretty new in all of this from a high level speaking so it'll be pretty interesting to see how it all plays out so to kind of sum up layer one is blockchain layer two or smart contracts and then layer three is the connection with the regular internet, right? And the interface we already know, like a website, an app, so web 2.0, is that correct? In a way, yeah. And I think people can argue about how to define these layers, but I would say layer three would be applications, even like distributed storage, apps, gaming, all these things are layer three. And like you said, layer two is more the actual protocol itself and how it functions. And layer one is like the essential architecture and the original code that's that was consensus. Consensus, right. Mechanism. Okay. 
And so, you know, I had a conversation, I think it was like last week with one of my friends who's a developer. Could you tell us more as, you know, that was the main subject of this conversation, how blockchains can talk with each other. There's this, you know, I'd say saying that, you know, most people believe in a multi-chain future. So is that possible that blockchains kind of, you know, connect with each other and talk to each other like, you know, APIs in the internet that we know? Right. And the ethos behind blockchain, a lot of it is around collaboration and cooperation. So there is a lot of effort being done to build bridges, connecting the different blockchain protocols. Ethereum is definitely, a, you know, has many or most applications found a way to connect Ethereum to it. And this is going to continue, I think, although it's uncertain how the future will play out because, you know, a lot of this has to do with network effects and the growth of specific protocols and the reliance on their base layer one, you know, mechanism. So if you think about Ethereum and if it does successfully launch layer two and it continues to build on that, there's a hypothetical chance that we won't need a lot of the other bridging protocols that have existed. I think right now it's important that these applications and protocols are developed because again this is all semi-experimental and we haven't really unlocked the answer yet in my view others may argue that but i think it is still a work in progress will they all last are these bridges going to be the way of the future probably for a while i would say to a certain degree and it's important to keep you know that in mind when you're developing or when you're thinking about doing a startup like what chain do you want to build on do you want to build on you know polygon or cardano or all these different options and it's not an easy decision. I think a lot of it has to do with what's your use case? What are you trying to build? Are you trying to do something where there's a need for many transactions to be settled very often at a low cost? Well, then, yeah, maybe Ethereum right now is not for you, and that's fine. You know, there's many trade-offs you have to consider. And then you have Bitcoin maximalists who argue that all of it is kind of not going to work out except for Bitcoin. Yeah, it's a really interesting space right now. But I got to say, there has been a lot of investment, especially in the last year and a half, into these alternative protocols and layers. And so, you know, we have a group of more than 8,000 people listening to this podcast, most of them being digital health founders located in the US and Europe. And so, you know, say there's someone listening to us right now that is planning to build their own Web3 startup in healthcare. What kind of features are they going to get by, you know, stepping into the Web3 world that they wouldn't have the possibility even, you know, about dreaming about in the regular web? So Web 2.0. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. It's an important one because we have hundreds of thousands of developers that have been developing for years on Web 2. But this transition into Web 3 is an important one for not only developers, but business people and creators and designers as well. And Web3 has a lot of features that Web2 doesn't. One being is the ability for users to really own the data that they generate and then making sure that they have full auditability about anyone who has access to their data or is requesting access to their data. That's something that we don't have right now. Once you think about, you know, when you download some app, it could be maybe a game or maybe some useful productivity tool that you download. All the content that you enter into that system is sort of managed by a centralized organization, a company that helps you facilitate all those, you know, use cases that you want to use. But with Web3, you can develop these applications where all the different activities you do could be done without the knowledge of the original creator of that code or software. So why is that important? Well, in terms of privacy, it's great. Users have full privacy around their data. 
that's becoming very important, especially in the healthcare space now, is there's so much data that's being collected about our health all the time. So like how much you sleep, who your friends are, how much you talk to them as well, and your social connections, that's all really part of health. And then you have like, you know, your mental health conversations with your therapist. These are all important pieces of your health. And most people would prefer to keep that private. So Patient privacy, that's a big one. And then you have this opportunity to reward your users with like micropayments or cryptocurrency tokens. Mm -hmm. And this sort of incentivizes the entire community Mm -hmm. to be engaged in like the application or in the community so that everyone sort of benefits. And then as the community grows, maybe your ownership in a certain token will increase as well. So there's this like feedback cycle, feedback loop that, you know, Web3 software can enable as well. So yeah, I think those are very important to consider. What was kind of the biggest impediment and problem for those startups building blockchain solutions in healthcare in say early 2017, 18? Like 99% of them failed. Yes. In a big way. I mean, I still think that blockchain is the way to go. It's the future. And I'm, you know, a huge believer. But like, what was the problem and how much different was the situation back then? Like, you know, five years ago. Absolutely. That's a good question. So number one, five years ago, back in 2017 and 18, when there were, you know, thousands of ICOs that were basically mainly scams trying to raise money from foolish people with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Not all scams, like some ideas were actually good ideas, but it was very hard to implement. And we have to like give credit to some of those founders who tried. But one of the major issues was there wasn't regulatory certainty around how cryptocurrency tokens should be reported or whether or not they're securities or not. So there's been progress made in that space. I think there is still some reluctance for founders to get into the space because, you know, it creates just a lot more complexity around how to do their accounting, how to ensure that they're following the most up-to-date guidelines, which changes every few months. So I think that's one reason a lot of founders and startup companies were failing. And there are still challenges now, I think, that we have to acknowledge is that the user experience for blockchain is still not really ready for the mainstream population, I think. Most people, they're not ready to store their private keys because it can potentially be you know, a huge point of failure. We are very reliant on having you know, a company reset our passwords when we can't find it. And that makes sense for most people right now. Can you imagine if you stored all your health information on a single private key and then you lost it for some reason, you couldn't find it anymore and nobody can help you get it back? We haven't solved that problem yet. I think that's still a problem that Web3 needs to address. There are some solutions you can think of like biometrics to be used as a way to unlock your private key. Again, then you might still need to consider centralized organizations to help create that tool or create that workflow. But it can eventually be done in a decentralized way too, in my view. I know, Ray, that you're wearing many hats. One of them is being a senior consultant for Equidium Health. That is a new name for Consensus Health. Do you have any use cases in which you are able, you know, as Equidium Health to gain the trust of people in the healthcare world and build something meaningful that at the same time was gaining great traction? Because now from my perspective, you know, not only as a startup builder, but also as a provider, it's really super hard to bring this awareness to patients, right? If you have a CHF patient that is over 65, I'm going to like tell him about, you know, getting an incentive as a token and opening up his own wallet. Is there anything that worked so far? 
Thanks for the question. So there is a lot that Equitium Health is working on now, and we do have existing partnerships with the Veterans Affairs uh, Dixon Center, and we're continuing to build our relationships with other health systems to test out some of the technology that we have built. And a lot of the technology we're focused on is to bridge or combine AI with blockchain. Mm -hmm. At the company, we like to say that blockchain is necessary, but not sufficient, meaning that you can't just have a blockchain and everything's going to be perfect. You really need to focus on the user experience and from the start, like how do they interact with the tools? And for us, patients do have a request or desire to have their data shared for research, but in a privacy-preserving way. So that's one of the biggest promises that we have right now is to allow patients to share their document, share their information, their data. It could be generated on their own, so self-reported, or data that's being created by the provider, so medical record information. We can share this data in a fine and granular way. So it's not like you check a box and it's either you share all your data or you share none of your data. We'll give patients the opportunity to share maybe the last year of their medical information or maybe specifically around their orthopedic encounters with their physician, not mental health, or maybe certain aspects of their daily routine and activity and the measurements they collect from their Apple Watch, for example. So all this allows for patients to, one, be in control of their data, and then second, and we view this as a future application, but be rewarded for the data that they share in something called like a health utility grid, so a hug. And we've been working with organizations to ensure that, you know, this becomes a reality. And, you know, it's been very interesting to watch. I'm very proud of the work that Equitium Health has been doing. And, you know, this year is going to be very, very important. And, you know, is there any way to kind of effectively integrate with EMRs? You know, at my last startup, we were spending between like three to six months to integrate with a new EMR, you know, working from Epic to Allscripts to Cerner. And, you know, I've been thinking recently, like how to do this effectively, sort of get the, you know, patient's consent to import their medical data from an EMR, right? So to kind of take it from a cloud location to chain and then off chain, where are you going to start? Yeah, and we use Firefast Healthcare Interoperability Resources as our standard. And uh, last year, we acquired a company called Fireblocks that specifically was building out this user consent mechanism and application. So that's how we import patient data just through Fire. But I agree with you. Integration with EMRs are one of the most challenging things I can think of in the healthcare space. It's gotten much better since you know many years ago. Now that Fire is becoming more widely used, of course. But you have to remember every health system in hospital has, or most at least, have a customly built AMR system. So they're not all the same. Most of them store their patients' data on their own servers, not on the cloud. I mean, that's also changing a little bit now too. Yeah, yeah. But you know the workflows are different. There's different ways that the data flows and you have to account for that because when you add customization, you add more complexity. So it's certainly a challenge for us too. And I think that's, I mean, you have to get started somewhere though. So like the partnerships we have now kind of give us a look into what's most challenging, where are we succeeding and how can we replicate this as fast as possible and scale it to other clients. But yeah, that's certainly a challenge, I think. Let's get back to your favorite use cases. And now you talked with over, is it a hundred or even more companies on your podcast, right? Yeah, I have about 90 or so episodes. 90? Okay, so close to 100 then. Yeah, almost there. <laughs> so Ray, what are your, say, top three or top five use cases and companies that you interviewed? Yeah, so there's different ways to categorize this because when you say top, do you mean 
like the top most impactful or the top use cases that are you know lowest hanging fruit that's more easy to implement or get started on but i'll answer and for both of them okay yeah yeah i just wanted to suggest let's be kind of you know mission driven first so those that could make the biggest impact and then just you know we could also take the pragmatic view so say which are the lowest hanging fruits that you know could be accomplished over the next two years not over the next um 20 years Absolutely. So to me, I think the biggest impact use case that we'll see in the next three to five years is the ability for an individual to receive personalized care and medicine treatments and options based on sort of this idea of a digital twin. So you can have AI analyzing boatloads of information from different populations, including genetic information and their behavior, as well as their, you know, their medical conditions. And this can tie into who you are as a person and compare you to all those people. So this personalized experience becomes more real because now when you go to a doctor, they not only know your past medical history, but an AI can also determine, you know, in the last 30 days, has there been any variation in your gait when you're walking or has there been any variation in the way you communicate with your colleagues or something like that? And I know that sounds very privacy intrusive, but we're going into that world where things are becoming more transparent. So, I mean, at least that's my thought. So what that means is every day you wake up, you can get a personal recommendation of what to eat, when to work out, not like what to do or how to work out, just also when is the most optimal time for you to engage with your body. And also, this can lead to longer lifespans, longer health spans, more specifically, where people are living with a healthy lifestyle for longer. And we'll just be more at ease and comfortable with speaking with our provider because we'll know like they have our best interest and they're not just following guidelines in order for insurance to pay them, right? To reimburse them. It'll be more about the individual and what's best for them, not just physically, but also mentally. And at the end of the day, the patient should have the right to choose whatever they want to do. So what we'll be doing is collecting this information, feeding it through like an AI system without actually revealing a patient's identity as well. So it's sort of like a very useful privacy preserving gateway really into a person's future, (laughs) potential future. Okay. Okay. And how about the pragmatic use case? Yeah. So when I talk about, you know, getting all this information from the patient, there's a lot of regulatory issues with that. I acknowledge that it's not as simple as, oh, we'll just pull in your information and give you recommendations. That sounds very nice, but there's also 10,000 digital health startups that have been trying to do this as well. Where I think blockchain has a unique role and it probably is like low-hanging fruit is anything that has to deal with not collecting patient information. So as I mentioned, provider credentialing, that's really helpful because you know you don't have to worry about patient information. And most providers are okay with sharing their information to the right parties. And it's not as critical. Another thing is something called a digital e-leaflet. You know how in pharmaceutical products for each medicine has a unique PDF file, or really it's like this piece of paper they put into the packaging. You open it up, it has all the studies that are associated with it, recommendations, directions, risks, adverse effects, all those things. So right now that is, again, managed by that pharmaceutical company, approved by the FDA, and they make sure that everyone agrees that everything that's said in there is accurate. But it would be great if we can ensure that any patient that receives a medicine is getting the same product information that was originally approved by the regulator. So I know that Pharma Ledger in Europe is doing a lot of work in that space, API, and I think they're you know really looking forward to getting you know 
test pilots and working this out in Europe. And it's not an easy test. It's quite a challenge, actually, right. because it really changes the way things have been going on for decades now. But I do feel like that's going to be a good opportunity to display the value of blockchain. Yeah, I look forward to that. And you, of course, uh, you can hear about blockchain being used for supply chain management across the healthcare industry. So that could be regarding devices to ensure there's no counterfeit products being sold, medicines, of course, especially when you deliver to regions of the world where there is a lot of counterfeiting of medicines. So being able to verify if a certain drug via a barcode is authentic, that's very valuable. And again, there's no patient information involved with that use case as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Are there any specific sort of use cases you might consider? as a provider in the space? So I've been actually, you know, recently researching a, a use case in the world of clinical trials and making research more transparent and data-driven. Like, you know, we need actually to have clinical trials go to locations that we were not even considering before to have a better representation of data and also quality of the data. So, you know, as a physician, as a provider, and also as a startup builder, I think that it's also one of the, you know, main use cases that can actually change how drugs are developed and how the whole, you know, value chain is operating in this segment. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Clinical trial, the actual execution of a clinical trial is important. And it's important because there is so much data that's generated during those trials. And the way they are recorded and shared among different stakeholders is, is also very important. We want to make sure we verify that the information that is generated is factual, accurate, and stays that way throughout the entire chain. And we also want to be able to share that information because sometimes bad information may not always be shared appropriately. Of course, there's guidelines on how trials should be done, but you know, being able to verify that information because it was timestamped on a blockchain really adds value, I think. And it also gives an opportunity for other outside researchers to dig into that data in more detail as well, more quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it'd be really great to have one day a decentralized clinical trials platform for all of the stakeholders to kind of live on this platform. And so that, you know, you're going to have a trial sponsor, CRO, SMO, as well as, you know, the PI and other researchers, you know, having this data in one place yeah, and having this kind of, you know, zero trust protocol, which is helping them to get this data and also to handle it during the course of the research, not to mention the incentivization part, right? It's so hard to get great talent when it comes to biostatisticians, PIs, and everybody engaged in this study. So, you know, like the biggest CROs are kind of treating their clients differently. Accordingly to if you're now a bigger pharma company or smaller pharma company, you get a different team, right? And you still want to do great research, even if you're, let's call that a small pharma company being a startup and just you know taking the first three molecules to market. So, you know, these are kind of my observations. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And you mentioned incentives, and I think you're right. These stakeholders, the sponsors, CROs, clinical sites, they all have slightly different incentives for operating, which makes it a little challenging sometimes to ensure that there's quality within the trials and they're not just trying to get through what they need to get through because that's going to get them paid. And that's something that's very human in us. And I think we have to first like acknowledge that in some cases, that is how some of these trials are operating. And then two, we can find solutions to make it more trustworthy because there is this lack of trust from a general population point of view in clinical trials. Just if you think about the COVID-19 vaccine and a lot of the mistrust in the population around that, if we can say to the people that, hey, look, these trials have been validated, you can transparently see the data and in the future we'll have maybe even more data that makes it more trustworthy. You can imagine like, you know, audio taping of the conversations between the different patients and the providers. 
Right now, that's not going to happen. But just imagining how it could be maybe with voices altered or something. And now I'm like getting into future possibilities. But I think that <laughs> will create this trust where people can rely on the data. I think we have this like hesitation sometimes to trust the data. And it's for a good reason. But if we can put this layer of trust using blockchain or distributed ledger technology, it can really help. And I'm looking forward to that future. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, once talking about big data sets, I know it's also, you know, important to highlight the relation between blockchain and AI, right? In order to train a AI network, you need a lot of data and you need to be, you know, sure that this data is accurate, is true, is real. So I read about a lot of comments from the AI experts and people that are machine learning developers saying that blockchain could be actually, you know, transformational for the development of AI. What is your take on that? I tend to agree, actually, because AI is great if you have high quality data, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of potential there. If you are reluctant to share that data or if there's a reluctance in the industry or community to share that data, you're not going to have as high quality of models and machine learning models. But if there is a mechanism where we can allow users to share their data, again, in a privacy preserving way, it will enable more high quality data, you know, potentially, and which will lead to better models. I think this is very true. Uh, One company that I think is doing a great job in terms of using AI and blockchain is uh, Alkin, actually, and they're specifically looking at it for drug discovery. Mm-hmm. But there are many other ones as well. I mean, of course, Equidium Health is focused more on like the patient experience and the experience for providers as well. And then working with researchers and policymakers, we're all about like health equity and making sure that, you know, we're building a bright future for the healthcare industry that makes more sense. <laughs> Essentially, we're breaking down what we have now and rebuilding what we think would be the future. By the way... When is US going to catch up with the rest of the world when it comes to crypto regulatory, right? Most projects start right now in you know, BVI, Switzerland, Portugal, Singapore. <laughs> what about US? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but I will say I know that I think the Biden administration is going to be releasing some information or guidance on cryptocurrencies this week. So that'll be important. And, you know, America, actually, US, in my view, might have a lot to lose if we do transfer from a fiat currency based economy to a blockchain economy because the US dollar right now is the monetary it's the main currency of the world so if that were to change we'd lose some of our power as a country but we also won't be doing us any favors if we don't allow innovators to start innovating the space and they all go to different countries to work on these projects and ideas because then those countries will get the reap the benefits so I think the U.S. is trying to find the right balance, but I think they should be a little more innovative and open-minded, I think. But it's not my area of expertise. I've watched a webinar three days ago with a guy who used to be the chief legal officer at Coinbase, like from 2018 to 2020. And so he was saying that, you know, there's going to be a new law introduced pretty soon, like in the coming months, which is going to say that essentially you'll have two years from the moment once you hit the market to research and say and understand if you're an asset and if that should be regulated or if that's a utility token. So that would be great, you know, because two years is still a lot of time for most of the startups to, you know, raise enough money to be able to pay for the best legal advisor. So I hope it's going to happen. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I do think there's a lot of opportunity in the regulatory space with blockchain, like to use blockchain systems to improve the transparency in our government and improve the way we make decisions or vote, just voting in general. I think, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more innovation in the gov tech space. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, just getting back to the topic of hosting data, you know, many people say that blockchain is great for making the fingerprint, but not for hosting the data itself. What is your take on that, right? Because, you know, many startups were starting by saying, oh, we're going to put your data on blockchain and it's going to be stored there. And now most of the new startups and companies say, we're just going to make the fingerprint on the blockchain, but we're going to put the data off chain because of so many things, but mostly, you know, the gas fees and all the cost structure behind it. So I do think that people would like to store their healthcare data on the blockchain. However, that is not feasible at this point. There isn't the protocols or technology available to store those large quantities of data, especially with healthcare data. Right now, what's happening is, like you said, they're fingerprinting or they're hashing the location or URL of the data. And then if somebody is able to unlock that hash, they can find the location of the file and pull it up that way. In the future, however, it's not totally impossible to imagine data being stored on some sort of distributed ledger right? It may not be on like the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum or something, but some sort of distributed ledger where transaction speed is really good. And the examples I'm thinking of that allow for this are something called Sia coin and Filecoin and IPFS. So these protocols can allow anyone to kind of store data, even like videos and things like that on sort of the blockchain. In a way, it's being stored on different computers that are being hosted by the network operators or maybe they're miners or stakers or something like that. So that is a possible future. I think once we have sufficient bandwidth or speed in terms of internet speed, 5G helps as well. That's technically possible to do. Right now, you know, we're storing NFT images, maybe like small images on the blockchain, but storing like an hour long video, it's not technically impossible. I mean... Just you'd have to have really, really fast transaction speeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, let's try, you know, to kind of wrap up things with your favorite projects in general in the crypto space, not only blockchain plus healthcare, but, you know, is there anything that our listeners should follow in terms of the hottest projects in crypto space that you either invested in or you're just, you know, following because you like their mission? Yeah, there's there's many actually. So I apologize for the ones I don't mention. And something that just comes to mind is the companies and organizations that are focused on decentralized science. So we talked about the clinical trial space. I think decentralized science is part of that, right? Because trials are sort of like medical science, you know, experiments. Mm -hmm. So VitaDAO and LabDAO, I think are doing some interesting work with blockchain and crowdfunding. So they're able to raise money for a certain research project, you know, and then those users are able to own part of the IP potentially for funding that research. So it's kind of an interesting model, a DAO model. So I'm very curious to see how DAOs play out for the rest of the year and beyond. Mm -hmm. But of course, there are so many. I encourage you all to check out my website and episodes for like more ideas and other companies that are doing stuff in the space. It's quickly evolving and there's so many opportunities for new people to get into this space. So if you're a healthcare worker in any way, either as a provider or technologist, or even in the legal space, there's space for you here. And I encourage you to learn more about it. I said before it's going to be the last question, but it's season finale. So let's have another one that is going to be a premium question. <laughs> is there anything important that I haven't asked you about? Is there anything I missed about this space? That's a good question. So I think there's probably some things, but I can't think of any right now. So you did a pretty good job asking the right questions. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. And yeah, I think, you know, every week, every month, there's like new ideas coming up. We have to pay attention to what's happening in the regulatory space, like in a, in a global mm -hmm. political landscape, because that is going to affect how blockchain rolls out in the world. So Ray, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining today. My pleasure. Thanks, Oscar. 
Our producer is Michelle. Carol is our editor. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to Digisection from the Health Podcast Network.